Welcome to this week's Market Insights podcast. Uh, my name is Charles Prado, and I'm delighted this week to be joined by Keith Wade, uh, Chief Economist, known to you all. Keith, thanks for being here once more. Thank you. And the great advantage of, of you being here is that we can talk about almost anything and everything in terms of uh, the ways of the world. And as usual, <clears throat> we meet in interesting times. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, given uh, what's going on. And so among the things we're going to be covering on today's call are uh, monetary policy, um, the sort of anecdotes that the latest profits warning from BASF uh, hint at. Uh, we'll touch on trade, uh, the broader growth outlook. Uh, and then opening the conversation up a little bit more, uh, we're going to touch on uh, geopolitics, something, Keith, which I know mm-hmm. you're uh, researching the moment in terms of the market implications of that. And then finally, uh, mindful of the thought piece that I hope some of you have already seen that's going out, the talking point uh, as a result of our latest investor survey, uh, which highlights that there's still a lot of complacency about market returns. And of course, that was a theme that Keith and I covered in our recent paper, uh, The Inescapable Truths. Uh, It seems like that particular truth continues to be inescapable. Anyway, um, with that, uh, just a quick recap. Uh, on market events over the last week. Um, As I speak, markets are a little bit soggy. I speak on Tuesday morning. Uh, But last week uh, generally was a good week for for equities, um, aided and abetted uh, by reassurance in terms of underlying growth, particularly from the US, uh, where I think it's fair to say that on balance, uh, the May-June data uh, has come in uh, slightly ahead of expectations. um, And that, of course, uh, has created some implications for monetary policy that we'll come on to. But specifically, um, whether it was US business activity uh, rebounding in June, uh, as captured by the flash uh, PMIs, um, or always a headline grabber, uh, the non-farm payrolls, uh, the unemployment data that beat expectations where 224,000 workers were added to the US economy um, in that month. Uh, more. Interestingly, perhaps, actually, if you go across to the Eurozone, um, yes, the Eurozone composite PMI uh, was positive, uh, 52.1. Remember, above 50 is expansion territory, um, with some business activity appearing to be recovering. Uh, and that's very consistent with what Azad has been calling for. But, 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 there is a but. Uh, manufacturing, especially in Germany, uh, and hence the BASF, which we referenced before, uh, continues to drag on the overall index. Um, and German factory orders were especially weak in May, um, down 2.2% month on month for the statisticians uh, amongst you, uh, which was compared to a number that was expected of essentially flat, so um, uh, so much worse. Um, okay, so with that as a general background, essentially, Keith, we have uh, once more this uh, drama playing out uh, in terms of monetary policy and what our expectations mm. are. I've been amused by what Bloomberg has been writing about at the moment, where for those of you who are students of um, T.S. Eliot and, or indeed Shakespeare, um, around Thomas the Becket um, and uh, Henry II, and where Henry II was reputed to have said, who will rid me of this troublesome priest? Um, when Becket was as the Archbishop of Canterbury, wasn't uh, abiding by some of the edicts that Henry had instructed. So in modern era, we have President Trump as Henry, and we have Jerome Powell um, as uh, as the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, how how should we um, uh, interpret the current psychodrama between uh, President Trump 
and the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Mm. Well, I, I think the first thing to say is that we hope that Jerome Powell doesn't have the same fate as Thomas Becker. Yeah, quite right. Um, it, it'd be rather sad. Um, yeah, I mean, clearly Trump is still pushing for, for lower interest rates as, as he continues to do that. And I think he will actually get lower interest rates in the next few months. Um, the uh, Fed will meet at the end of July and we think they will make a 25 basis point that's, that's that. It would now be shocking <coughs> if they did not do that, right? It would. I mean, in many ways, they're almost been pushed into that position because what we've seen is uh, we've seen some generally weaker data over the last few months. And the markets have reacted to that. And in a, in a way, the markets have sort of eased financial conditions already quite a lot through lower bond yields and higher equity prices. So if, if Jerome Powell went against that, he would have to be able to be prepared to see, you know, markets selling off quite substantially. And that, of course, would reverse that, that easing of financial conditions. So in a way, he's been pushed a little bit into a corner, not just by Trump, but, but by the markets but as there well. Were, but, but there were some market participants who, um, you know, as recently as a month ago, were calling for a 50 basis. Point. I mean, people, Indeed. right? Yes, um, yes. Which was a little aggressive, I think. Right. And, and actually, I would have thought it would have been very counterproductive. Actually, it would have sent a very negative signal about Panicky an economy. Message. Yes, yeah. it would. I mean, the economy is slowing down, and we do think rate cuts are justified. But we don't think on that sort of you know fifty basis points that that would have been too much in one go. So the way we see it is that um, Powell can look at it. He's seen the data slow down. Uh, his central view of the economy is probably not too bad, but he recognises the downside risks. He's also very aware that inflation continues to come in lower than expected. And that kind of gives him the freedom to say, OK, I will focus on the risks here. I'm not going to be jeopardising my target. I can cut interest rates as an insurance cut. And I think that's how he will do it and how he'll present it. I also think that he'll probably have to follow up on that with another cut later on because it seems to me the way that the GDP is playing out, it's going to be quite weak. And by September, that will probably justify another cut as well. So can we dig into that a bit more detail mm. in terms of the playing out by September? And in September, your expectation as to when another move might happen? Yes, it is. Yeah, and, and from an economic standpoint, what kind of evidence do you expect to be emerging at that time to provide the justification as opposed to the, the panic. Yeah, so w the area that we've really focused on has been capital spending and the weakness there. And uh, that continues to be very, very weak. And you mentioned the German uh, orders, and they were, they were partly reflecting that. This is a global issue. We also had Japanese orders are down, and US durable goods orders are down as well. And that tends to be one of the swing factors in the economy. The consumer is actually not doing too badly in, right. in the US. And we notice also from PMIs that the service sector generally is OK. But it's all about the weakness in manufacturing. And a lot of that's because of the trade wars and the impact on CapEx. And the way that we look at it is the US economy will probably grow at less than 2% in the second quarter, so below trend. And I think that would probably prompt Powell to say, well, Sorry, OK. Sorry, in the third quarter? In, no, in, it will be in the second quarter. And as we go into the third, we'll probably see some of the continuation of weakness. Right. We won't have all the data by September. Right. Uh, so he'll still be, it's all you know, looking in the rearview mirror. And then they'll probably make another move. When they did some insurance rate cuts before in the 90s, they actually cut rates by 75 basis points in 95 and in 98. Those were different, similar kind of periods. So I would look for a couple of couple of moves over the next few months. So what what's in a sense extraordinary about that is that you're talking like that, and yet we've got the unemployment picture that we have, mm. um, which is uh, curiously non-inflationary at the moment, but is as close to full employment as one could almost imagine at this stage in the U.S. 
It is, although um, what we have seen consistently with the US is that the participation rate has been increasing. So we, we have got a low level of unemployment, but what we find is that the economy can continue to create jobs. And what's happening is it's pulling in people who, who have been outside the labor force. So it's not really, the unemployment rate is probably overstating the tightness of the labor market to some to some degree. There the is some hidden slack, therefore. There is a little been. bit of slack there. But having said all that, um, you know, I think the given that inflation is below target at the moment, the way that the Fed will look at it, it said, OK, well, there is a risk that inflation will pick up and wages will pick up because the labour market is so tight. But, you know, so what if inflation goes a bit over 2% It'll at this fine. stage of the cycle? It's not the end of the world. Well, no, it'd be actually quite, in a weird way, quite good news. Yes. Um, so um, let's kind of um, broaden it out into uh, global growth. Um, and I mentioned in my introductory comments that we've had this very morning a pretty severe profit warning from BASF. Um, which, from a symbolic standpoint, is quite significant. What's what's your take on what they've been saying? I think that captures a lot of the weakness that we've just been discussing. You know, a clearly a, a cyclical manufacturing company that's that's been hit uh, by the weakness of industrial production that we've seen in Europe, by particularly by in the auto sector, by the slowdown in China. What was also interesting in their uh, uh, comments, though, was that the trade wars between the US and China have affected them because of the impact on US agriculture. So, you know, this is really impacting everybody. And when the trade wars started, there was, there was quite a lot of thought that actually, you know, Europe might not do too badly because it could experience what we call trade diversion. It will pick up orders that have been lost between the US and China. They will turn to Europe as a new supplier. But actually, because of the supply chains and the very integrated nature of the world economy, we're finding that everybody is really suffering. And those PMI results that you referred to earlier show quite a lot of weakness in Europe and also in Asia, particularly in Taiwan and Korea, the sort of classic supply well, the, chain exactly. economies. Exactly. And, and of course, you know, whether it's Korea, um, I always know um, Belgium is rather important in this regard as yes. well, isn't it? But, but Germany on a much larger scale, um, with particularly with its manufacturing bias, and as you say, inherent to that supply chain, is something of an epicenter uh, for, mm. for this. You know, yes. Germany, if you like, having been an unambiguous beneficiary of global free trade, particularly manufacturing oriented, and now having to experience a very different reality, quite aside from other local difficulties such as the diesel crisis. Uh, absolutely, yeah, and it, it's really been brought home just how dependent the eurozone is on external demand, just as is Japan and and parts of Asia as well. Right, um, and so from the point of view of um, monetary policy more broadly, clearly we've got um, ECB succession. Mm. Uh, Henry, do you have a quick view on um, Christine Lagarde? Well, the take so far has been that she will continue the legacy of Draghi, that she will be dovish. Um, I think that she's she's a good choice in the sense that the ECB is almost running out of options and uh, she has great experience as a negotiator. She was very actively involved in the Greek crisis and so on. And I think if anybody can try and maybe bring together the different finance ministers of Europe alongside the ECB and recognise the need for extra stimulus in the economy, it's probably probably her. So I think it's a positive for growth so for, for, for the Eurozone. But, you know, monetary policy is really pretty much exhausted in terms of what it can do. 
And I think the, the, the strategy at the moment, and this is something we've been discussing in, with the multi-asset team and others, I think the strategy at the moment is going back to the currency wars that we had before. You know, the noises that Draghi was making, I think he's got one eye on the currency, recognising that, you know, the Fed are cutting rates, the dollar might start to weaken, they don't want to see a stronger euro, so let's join the let's join the monetary easing gan, uh, bandwagon and 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 talk talk things down as well. Right. Talking of currencies <coughs> going down, just briefly, um, sterling has uh, decided to take the mm. elevator going down again, and as I speak, is about one twenty-five and change. Mm. Um, clearly, that is um, Brexit related and fear of a no deal, etc. Anything else to add? I mean, is there evidence about the UK specifically around uh, the economy now properly suffering? Well, it seems that, um, yeah, I mean, the industry has, has, has suffered quite a lot as a result of the, the, the Brexit uncertainty and that capex weakness I referred to earlier. But part of the, the recent difficulty seems to revolve around some negative news on the high street and consumer spending and retail sales, which, have, which has been quite a mainstay of growth. So once the consumer starts to lose confidence, then the economy really is going to look very weak. Yeah. And of course, sterling continues to be that ultimate opinion poll. Indeed. Um, okay. So can we just broaden this out? We've touched, obviously, the political dimension to the, to the UK. I was, I was quite intrigued by the uh, Greek uh, election results, mm. um, with um, Cyprias you know, losing, uh, losing control, um, and the Greeks almost going back to the future. Yeah. Um, what's your What's your observation around that? Well, I, I, I mean, I think I mean people are saying, oh yes, it means that you know populism isn't maybe going to be such a force that people had expected it to be. But of course, what what happened was that when you know, when Syriza got into power, uh, Cyprus then sort of changed his tune completely and had to sort of buy into the IMF package, right. uh, which of course then made him very unpopular. And now he's out of power. And I noted that uh, the IMF have just been reminding uh, the Greek, the new Greek government, that actually there is a uh, conditions attached to this this lending package, and that they won't actually be able to fully escape from uh, austerity, even with the with the change of government. So, I think a lot of this reflects the the, the difficulties, the financial constraints that politicians are under, and it's something that we refer to in the inescapable truths that. You know, nobody can really offer the kind of solution. There's very few economies that have the fiscal space to really, uh, you know, boost growth on their own accord. Right. So you, you've got a paper coming out shortly on geopolitics. Mm. Um, can you give us a sneak preview of the headlines from, from, from the paper? Yeah, so there's a couple of things to mention. One is that, I mean, it, it, it says that from our analysis, particularly focusing on the US-China relationship, the tensions, the geopolitical tensions between the two are going to persist, and that's really a reflection of the respective sizes of those two economies. Uh, and it also draws on the on populism and economic nationalism and, and argues it will continue. What we've also done, though, is we've, we've had a look at how might fund managers react to this, and we've just looked at five key periods where we've had a lot of geopolitical risk, and we've looked at how fund managers might have switched out of risky assets into safer assets and whether or not that would actually have benefited them. And we do find there are, there are some benefits from doing that. So there are things that fund managers can do to actively manage this, this, this risk. And, and the kinds of actions that would be interesting, I think, for our clients to hear about. Yeah, essentially what it means is, so we looked at you know, a, a, a fund manager holding a portfolio of equities and then you know, switching into um, a safe portfolio, which would be government bonds, gold, yen, Swiss franc, 
and you know looking at whether or not that would actually have delivered value for them when when the geopolitical risk index goes above a certain level and there's some very simple rules show that you can actually improve the sharp ratio as a result of that so what i find um a little bit eerie is if i go back to the call that gavin had with um, alex tedder this time last week which i thought was a fascinating call uh, and alex highlighting um, his concern about the second half of the year as we all know having had a wonderful mm. um, uh, in terms of returns first six months of this year that the profit outlook uh, once you get beyond the season that we're about to have looking a little bit more subdued it's something which I know you've been talking about in the past yes if we overlay that with reasonably extended valuations um, you can argue the cape until mm. the cows come home mm. um, but reasonably extended valuations uh, and then what you're just talking about in geopolitic geopolitical terms suddenly there's a narrative that starts to come together in terms of uh, greater risk aversion. Yeah, so I, I mean that, that's absolutely right. And you know, we've we've said that you know our models are saying we're in the slowdown phase of the cycle, which tends not to be very good for equities. I think what we're seeing at the moment is a great tussle between this outlook and the kind of factors that you just mentioned against the power of liquidity. And the latest figures from Bloomberg have uh, over 12 trillion dollars worth of bonds on negative yields uh, and it comes back to the old Tina market there's no alternative you know where do you go and uh, when we look at uh, valuations and comparing the, the level of bond yields against the, the level of equity yields equities don't look too bad mm -hmm. they, they are a little bit stretched but they don't look ridiculously expensive I think the other point they that, also have a, the, yeah. the, the sort of fully fledged public equity um, with that yield they have one other crucial advantage, right? They're liquid. They are liquid, exactly. Yeah. And of course, that, that's mm. been something that has become a very big issue in the market. But the, but the other point I would just add about the equity market is that, you know, people say the equity market's ignoring the bond market. But actually, when you look at the kind of stocks that are doing well in the equity market, it's not cyclicals. It's not value stocks. It, the, the stocks that are exposed to the economic cycle are suffering. And, you know, it's quality uh, stocks. And, and stocks that do pay uh, a well-secured, consistent dividend, those are the ones that continue Visi to Visible very cash well. flows, etc. Exactly. Yeah. So the market is reflecting quite a bit of that. And then maybe just to sort of end by talking a little bit more broadly about markets in that vein. Mm. Um, uh, Alex was um, uh, talking about a slight pivot away from some of the tech giants, the Microsofts of this world, where he thinks that you know, valuations are pretty full, and going more towards emerging markets. Um, mm because again the sort of structural growth uh, element there is, is stronger right now would you share that view yeah I would to to quite a large extent and certainly when we do our, our medium term our 10-year forecast emerging markets do continue to come out pretty well I think at the moment uh, rather than equities it's actually debt that we think is probably more attractive um, and of course this this these very low negative yields are creating an enormous search for yield and a search for carry amongst multi-asset and all investors so I think initially emerging market debt benefits the, the 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 issue for the equity side is of course the weakness of global trade and we need probably to see a little bit more of a recovery in the world economy before emerging market equities can really start to perform. And that of course links back to Trump and China. Indeed. Yeah. Keith um, we're running out of time so let me quickly summarise uh, what we've covered. Uh, first of all, very prosaically, expecting a 25 basis point cut um, at the end of July from the Fed. Uh, the market would be properly shocked if that didn't take place. 
um, and that you're expecting a further move uh, on the back of probably mounting evidence of a weaker US economy, uh, particularly because of the CapEx cycle uh, come September. Um, generally extrapolating to the broader world, it continues to be, to use a technical term, a lacklustre growth uh, position. Uh, we've got particular issues in Germany and other economies exposed to the global supply chain, uh, which now, per BASF's profit warning, highlighting the grit that's in the oyster now as a result of political intervention and something we've been talking about in the sphere of the inescapable truths. And if one is now uh, looking to be alert and maybe to put clients on notice, partly because of the where we are in the cycle, partly because of geopolitics, um, risk off trades uh, being researched uh, ever more. And if one's looking for return opportunity finally, uh, then in keeping with what Alex was talking about in part, uh, emerging markets, but particularly emerging market debt, uh, being an interesting avenue to still source return at this stage of the cycle, even if that is in part dependent on China-US relations being perceived to be somewhat easier than they are now. Keith, with that, thank you very much indeed. Hugely interesting as always. Thank you. And everybody, thank you very much for listening. We really appreciate it. But this concludes this week's call. Thank you.